Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hi, it's Friday, May 29th. Hey, Connie, how are you? I'm great, Alex. How are you? Doing really well, thanks. <laughs> One company in the news this week was GeoPlatforms, which we talked about last week. As listeners of this podcast know, we love Geo almost as much as SoftBank and maybe even Elon Musk. Connie, what happened with Geo this week? Yes, Geo was once again very much in the headlines. To catch listeners up to speed who may not be completely on top of this company, because it did kind of emerge, at least in the American media, out of nowhere, seemingly about a month ago, Mukesh Ambani, who is already Asia's richest man, wants to build the next global technology company. Toward that end, he is selling 20% of his mobile carrier and technology juggernaut Geo Platforms. He's been doing this through private placement deals with big companies and brands that could really boost its credentials. So, so far in a matter of weeks, and we talked about this last week on the podcast, it had sold off around 17% of the company, including to Facebook, Silver Lake Partners, Vista Equity Partners, KKR, and General Atlantic. But it continues to hold talks with a number of very heavy hitters, according to a variety of reports. So one of these is the Abu Dhabi state fund Mubadala, which is in talks with Reliance Industries about investing about a billion dollars in GEO. We had mentioned on the podcast that Mubadala was interested in GEO, but Reuters flushed this out with a number. Separately, Reuters reported that Twitter is now in talks with Reliance to invest more than a billion dollars in GEO. But that's not all. India's Mint newspaper reported yesterday that Microsoft is also in talks to buy 2.5% of Geo for $2 billion. I mean, the question is sort of fast becoming, who isn't trying to invest in Geo? And I get it. Ambani wants Geo to hold rank alongside the likes of Amazon and Tencent and Google and Alibaba. Geo Platforms already has an ecosystem of apps, everything from online grocery shopping to video streaming that it serves to the 388 million subscribers it has through the Reliance Geo mobile network in India. More, we had speculated last week, Alex, uh, that the company might be prepping Geo for an IPO, and reports now suggest that's exactly what's happening. At least sources are leaking to the media that Reliance plans to wrap up the bulk of its private fundraising by the third quarter of this year and then explore a potential U.S. IPO next year. And it's already reportedly talking to both Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs about underwriting the deal. I don't know what you think, Alex. I can't help but feel a little uneasy about all these rapid fire funding rounds. It's often the case that when everybody starts gravitating toward a new shiny object, as happened with SoftBank's Vision Fund, which sort of counted everyone and their brother as an investor, and we saw happen also with the augmented reality startup Magic Leap, it spells bad news. Maybe Geo really will become everything to every Indian and build this indispensable platform. It certainly seems poised to do it. There's just something nervous making to me about this story. It does feel a little bit like a party round where everybody is trying to get in on something and who knows how long it's going to last. I thought it was interesting that you mentioned that it was looking at doing a U.S. listing because Bloomberg is reporting that the company is actually looking at an overseas listing that could potentially give the business a higher valuation, but also allow existing investors to exit more easily than they would if it were a U.S. listed company. 
I saw that. I don't really understand that logic, to be honest. But listeners, if you happen to have a better handle on this stuff and could reach out, we'd appreciate it, frankly. Speaking of companies that have raised a lot of money from a lot of high-profile investors, there was some news out of Magic Leap this week. Alex, what happened? Magic Leap developed this really insane virtual reality technology that everybody was talking about, and it attracted over $3 billion of investment from everybody. Andreessen Horowitz, Kleiner Perkins, KKR, Qualcomm, Google, Wellington, Fidelity, everybody was involved in this deal. This week, however, its CEO, Ronnie Abovitz, stepped down, this on the heels of supposedly raising $350 million as a lifeline, according to the information, and letting go of 1,000 people. The problem with the company was that it was trying to attack two markets, consumer and enterprise. Its consumer headset, however, was way too expensive, $2,000, and it never really seemed to attract enterprise clients. So now it's trying to reorient itself and target the enterprise market. Specifically, it's looking at a deal in the healthcare space, from what I understand. But again, it's one of these companies that attracted a lot of buzz, a lot of money, Nobody really saw the technology catch on, and yet there was still this frenzy to invest. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, Bill Gurley had tweeted about this as things were coming apart sort of more publicly, I guess it was early this year, last year, just saying how it's so often the case that investors invest based on who else is in the deal rather than any sort of hard due diligence. I don't know if that was the case here, but it's mystifying how many smart people were involved in this company that seems to be headed absolutely nowhere. Connie, one of the stories that you covered this week was tech companies that are trying to pay people less for living in places other than San Francisco, New York, et cetera. Yeah, well, the whole remote work story is still very top of mind this week for obvious reasons. And I had done a story about people being paid based on their geography. We kind of talked a little bit about this last week on the podcast. And I published a story that uh, listeners can find over at TechCrunch, uh, where I'm an editor. But I also, for a separate but related piece, was in touch with Matt Mullenweg, who is the founder of Automatic, which owns WordPress and Tumblr and a bunch of other properties and is very well known for being a fully distributed company, despite employing more than 1,000 people at this point. So I wanted Matt's viewpoint on this. I wanted to know, frankly, if Automatic pays different wages based on location. And He had some interesting points about why paying people exactly the same amount, no matter where they live, is something that the company always aims to do, but is actually quite difficult. Among the biggest obstacles to keeping pay in sync, he noted, is paying compensation in local currencies, which can have wild swings, and that creates imbalances. He also just said it takes time, that, you know, along with an understanding of a whole lot of factors that don't come into play when a company employs geographically homogenous groups of employees, they have to consider things like political instability security concerns, and even the impact of somebody making five to 10 times what their friends and family may make in salary. It was interesting stuff. I still think there's so many questions, Alex, about how sweeping or not this trend will be. You and I talked to one of our neighbors who is involved in real estate, and he was saying he really doesn't anticipate that it's going to be as big as we may be anticipating in this very moment in time. I also talked separately with a founder, Jeremy Conrad, who I wrote about today, who's building a construction tech company. And we talked a while about remote work, and he kind of echoed the sentiment that this talk is vastly overblown, not just because companies risk losing their culture over time, but also because if this COVID crisis has taught us 
anything, it's how much we really value being around other people. And, you know, a lot of employees are actually dying to get back to the office at this point. They'd probably take a pay cut just to get away from their families and roommates. I thought it was interesting what you said about the taxes that folks have to pay in different states and cities and trying to make accommodations for that as well. That sounds very complicated. It's really interesting. You're referring to a, a Wall Street Journal piece that we were reading this morning, and that has to do with remote workers right now. And I don't think a lot of people realize, I didn't realize that depending on where you're spending time right now, you may have to pay state tax if you're staying with your parents or you've, you live in California, but you're in New York for a few months. So that's going to be, I think, you know, on top of all the other headaches people are sort of enduring right now, yet another headache and worth looking into. Of course, another big story this week is the president's newest executive order. Yeah, as we all know, President Trump was very angry at Twitter this week. He didn't like the fact that Twitter was fact-checking his messages. He was making posts about voter fraud, and he also posted something about the protesters who were rioting in Minneapolis about George Floyd. Trump believes that liberals are suppressing conservative expression, and his order is meant to undermine something called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which is a law passed by Congress in 1996 that lays out the rules of the road for online media. It essentially says that tech platforms can moderate certain kinds of expression that are dangerous and involve criminal acts, but they don't necessarily have to be responsible for other types of expression. I was more interested in this subject than I thought I would be because I learned that the reason that this whole rule came about was because of the Wolf of Wall Street, Stratton Oakmont, who had a company called Prodigy that was sued because it moderated some of its content, but not all of its content, and thus was subject to slander law. There are a lot of applications for this law other than Facebook and Twitter, however. Yelp and Amazon count on reviews for businesses and products, and they can't be responsible for all of these posts. So it does create a bit of a nightmare. Legal experts say that Trump doesn't have a leg to stand on and that he doesn't have the power to amend this law. The irony of all of this is that if Trump succeeded, it would actually mean that Twitter would have to be even more aggressive about monitoring his tweets because they would be liable. Yeah, it's funny. Actually, as of right now, I think this is not a terrible thing. I would love to see social media companies forced to crack down on misinformation on their sites, even if out of fear of being liable in some way for the ramifications of that misinformation. There are a lot of second order effects here that I think not everyone has thought through. I certainly haven't. But candidly, on its face, even if it was inspired by what appears to be a temper tantrum, I'm kind of for it. I mean, again, as you mentioned, I don't think it's going to go anywhere. Section 230 is part of the law, and I don't know that that could be changed without congressional approval. But misinformation obviously is a huge problem in our society and one that I'm not sure how it gets resolved. I have to say also, there was sort of an interesting subtext happening between Twitter and Facebook this week. So Trump was sort of specifically aggravated with Twitter, which added these fact check suggestions to his tweets. Meanwhile, Mark Zuckerberg appeared on Fox News on Wednesday night to sort of draw a distinction between Facebook's approach to moderating speech and Twitter's saying that Facebook doesn't think it should be the quote, arbiter of truth of everything that people say online. And Zuckerberg also said it has a different policy, I think, than Twitter on this. I frankly thought he looked a little bit weaselly by doing that. Jack Dorsey quickly got onto his own platform to make clear that Twitter doesn't think it's the arbiter of truth either, but it uh, sort 
sort of wanted to, quote, connect the dots of conflicting statements and show the information in dispute so people can judge for themselves. Twitter created this mess by itself, though, by letting things go on as long as it has. No matter what your political views, Trump has used Twitter to bully, to harass, to spread lies. That's just a fact. And all of these have been in violation of Twitter's rules. So why it took so long to take any action is really hard to defend. As with a lot of things out of this White House, we're not sure where this is going to lead, but stay tuned. And now, coming up, an interview with Jeff Cavins, CEO of Outdoorsy. But first, a word from our sponsor. of wealth managers surveyed by Deloitte recommend investing into art. And it makes sense. Art has outperformed the S&P by over 180% since 2000, with virtually no correlation according to a 2019 Citibank study. But how can you access this insiders-only asset class generally reserved for billionaires? With Masterworks.io, an exclusive investment platform for multi-million dollar artworks from artists whose works have appreciated at 8 to 30% annually, get paid when the painting sells, or flip your shares on their secondary market. It's that simple. If you're looking to protect your portfolio from risk, take a look at real, tangible assets like art. You can invest in paintings by artists like Monet, Warhol, and Banksy today. Sign up and tell them Strictly VC sent you to skip their 15,000-person waitlist. And now, our interview with Jeff Cavins, whose startup Outdoorsy could hardly be any hotter right now. Outdoorsy connects customers with tens of thousands of RVs and camper vans that are owned by other individuals who are looking to monetize them. Van life, a kind of social movement, has been growing for years, but with COVID in the air, along with Americans' continued fears of getting on planes, many more people will be looking to rent an RV this summer than possibly any other time in U.S. history. We talked with Cavins, who has started and or run six companies previously, about what that demand looks like and other trends he sees shaping up right now. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for joining us today. I'm interested in how your model has changed with COVID. Are people renting your vehicles for much longer? And how are they using these vehicles differently than they were in the past? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks, Alex. We had typically seen an average rental on our platform would run about six days. That's now over nine days. With COVID, like many other companies, you know, we saw a lot of debookings in the platform, but then they all roared back. And then some, we've seen a 2,645% increase in bookings from the low point of COVID, which is late March to uh, this afternoon. And the trend is longer trips for sure. What percentage of first-time users are you seeing on the platform? In the month of May, two and a half million people come to the site. 88% of them are first-time renters. It's a record for us. Many of those who are first-time renters, more than half of them have come back and already booked their second trip. So some of these people have booked in May. They went away for the Memorial Day weekend. They came right back and they booked another one for, in this case, like 4th of July or June. And as you know, a lot of people are at home with their kids. So everybody in America has this big, long, extended summer break with their kids, and they're, they're finding this is the safer option for travel. Do you have enough 
supply to meet demand. How many cars are on the platform right now? When we talked last, it was when Outdoorsy had just raised its Series B, I guess. So that was a $50 million mm-hmm. round in January of last year, bringing your total funding at that point to $75 million. I'll give you the answer in kind of two slices. And by the way, we've raised uh, $88 million now. We did a round that we, it, it was a dash round where investors will come and try to top up or want mm-hmm. to top up because they have mm-hmm. more liquidity in their fund. So we've raised $88 million to date. That small round was closed at the end of January of this year. We have 48,000 peer-to-peer listings and small rental operation listings on our site. When we add our international users, and we have a lot of these mega fleets that are connected to our site via an API, companies like Indie Camper or Juicy Camper Van, you see them all over the world, that puts our supply at 68,000 units. So 68,000 units, figure 52 weeks out of the year, times 68,000 units, and you know an average of about $121 a night. The, we haven't even begun to scratch the capacity of our supply yet. I'm just curious about the precautions that you are taking with your inventory during this period. How are you making sure that owners of vehicles are maintaining their campers so that they are free of germs and they don't transmit diseases? So cleanliness is a big factor, of course, for any form of accommodation. In our case, what we've been doing is producing to our listing community CDC guidelines on cleaning standards. We've asked our owners to place additional time between rentals so they can take time to manually disinfect and decontaminate the unit. One of our investors is a molecular biologist, and he's been helping us with communicating with our owner community on things like these new ultraviolet irradiation lamps that are common. You'll see them installed in ambulances, you know, when people will shed viruses and bacteria during an ambulance trip. The ambulance may sit overnight and they put these lamps in there. And these lamps, if you let them set for a while, will help completely decontaminate the environment. We're also encouraging renters to make sure that, you know, they bring cleaning supplies with them. A lot of people will feel more safe if they're able to control their environment. And then one of the other things is we've started this thing called contactless key exchange. A lot of people don't want to drive an RV. They'll want it delivered at a campsite or a mountaintop or a beachfront. And many of our owners, about 60%, 60% of all of our transactions now are delivery. So the owner will deliver the vehicle to a campsite, put out the awning, the camping chairs, and so on. And then um, the renter will come later and enjoy their trip. Jeff, I I wondered, because I'm right now working on a story about this, there's a a local San Francisco company, much, much smaller, uh, but it tries to facilitate hourly rentals. It matches people with homeowners who are looking for a daytime break away from either the office or maybe from their own like roommates. They just received a letter from San Francisco saying, basically, stop what you're doing. You're violating our health codes. I don't think it's surprising, candidly, but I'm just wondering, have you had any issues with any of the cities or states in which you operate? No, we, we haven't had anything like that. And perhaps it's because we don't promote ourselves as scientists or biologists. We're saying, look, here are the CDC guidelines for decontamination and disinfecting. Here are the guidelines from the CEO of Human Biomolecular Research Institute. We encourage you to do this, but at the end of the day, we all know that there's risk in anything that we do. I think a lot of our users are finding that it feels a lot more safe to them to go into the outdoors. And you also think about this too. When you camp or you RV travel, by design, you are in a socially distanced environment. I mean, you would not go to a campsite and have somebody on the other side of a door. Mm-hmm. camping next to you, like you would in a house. If I were renting a house in the apartment right next door to me, could be somebody with coronavirus. Mm-hmm. And, but if I'm going to Yellowstone, 
chances are the person closest to me is going to be 30 or 40 feet away at their campsite. I also wanted to ask, related to this same company, it kind of has pivoted in recent months to sort of position itself as an alternative to the quarantine weary, saying if you need to get away from your family for a phone call or your roommates to get your work done, use our service. I'm just wondering, are people using your platform maybe not to go to Yellowstone or Yosemite, but to work across the street? The meta trends that we're seeing is one is that we're all working from home. And that might be a trend that we see for a long time. And then that that trend has led into this other trend, which is families are connecting more than they've ever connected before. Certainly more in my lifetime. You see it on TikTok and Facebook. Families are playing board games again. They're hanging out. They're playing Frisbee in the backyard. But one of the problems with COVID is that I know I may live in San Diego, for example, and grandma lives in Kansas City, and there's no way for the kids to go see grandma. We're not going to get on an airplane. We're not going to go to a mass market airport, and we're certainly not going to stay at a mass market hotel. So what's happened is camper van and RV travel has become that way for families to take the perfect trip to go see those loved ones they haven't been able to see during quarantine and maintain family connectivity. And it's the only really all-inclusive way to travel where you can also bring your pets with you. I think that that's one of the things that's precipitating the long duration trips that we're seeing now. The people are taking longer trips to see loved ones they've been unable to see due to the lockdowns. I have some questions about the metrics of your business. How many people do you have? Uh, have you had to do any rifts because of COVID? And also, where are you in terms of your projections for this year? Will you be on target? Will you be meaningfully up or meaningfully down? We had about 160 employees prior to COVID, and we did do some right-sizing. Most of the impact in our organization in the right-sizing was in our international markets. In terms of our domestic employee base, rather than cuts, we took out a few, but it was a very small amount. We sat down with the team and said, if everybody's willing to take a salary adjustment, we'll reward you with more equity in the business. And this could be a period of time where we save those jobs around us. So if we can all be in this together, we're all going to take concessions. Like I I work with no income. I don't have a salary. And there are a few other executives that elected to do that. It was a way to align our employees with our investors by compensating them more in equity. But this is my seventh tech company. And I've had to take every single, I'm CEO of two publicly traded ones. Every single company that I've led has had to deal with a crisis, whether it was the dot-com crash, it was 9-11, the Great Recession of 2008. In each case, you have to go in and look at the company and figure out what are the assets you want to invest in? Where do you want to make bets? Where do you want to bring some of those bets in? We settled in for what we thought was going to be a long haul. Our plan was, I want to have four years worth of cash in the bank, assuming no revenue is ever produced again in the company. And we built our plan around that. And then in May, we come roaring back. We're now over our original 2020 plan, which still was a a very aggressive growth plan. And so in May, we've actually caught up and now exceeded the original operating model for the month of May. And we're on track to do the same in June, which would be to beat our numbers in June. And we're thinking this could be a long-lasting consumer trend because we'd already been seeing this fast-growing base of consumers who loved outdoor travel. But now they're adding to that this view of the activity as being one that's safe and supports social distancing by design And we always knew we were starting to steal some share from the hotel and airline industry. But what's interesting is the people that are going on these trips are now coming back and they're booking additional trips. So we're starting to see that repeat side cohort in the business take off, which is something that's relatively new for us. 
Jeff, in addition to scaling back internationally, when we talked early last year, you were getting into other lines of business, like helping to finance vacations through a partnership with a firm. I'm just wondering, how many of these do you have going and are they as important right now? Or is that another area that you maybe are paying less attention to in order to accommodate growth in your fundamental service? The Affirm partnership is actually doing very well right now because we, you know, we have almost 40 million people unemployed in America. International travel is essentially dead. People don't want to go to the hotels or the mass market cities or airports. So we're becoming that default logical decision for people, but many people can't afford it. So that's really done well for us. Another thing that we had in place is at the end of the year of 2019, we had signed a global distribution agreement with Generali. Generali provides trip and trip cancellation insurance. We had deployed that in our platform right before COVID hit. So a lot of people that had to deal with the cancellations, of course, you know, the owners weren't going to rent the vehicle. They were able to get all of their money back and we provided credits as well. But because of the Generali product, they recovered, they were insured. So we didn't have a lot of that. You hear a lot about in the press right now, uh, marketplaces that are struggling with the cancellation policies, not giving money back to the consumer and so on. We haven't had that impact in the business because many were buying trip and travel insurance, cancellation insurance. Like any uh, business that's going after a pretty lucrative space, there are a number of competitors, including Airbnb. Who do you consider to be your greatest competitor? There's a few small ones out there. Um, Airbnb has never been that interested in this asset class. This is a very different type of behavior. It's a different type of owner. This is our core customer and our core audience. We understand it really well. And it's so nuanced. We're the only company in the world that does this on a global footprint. We operate in 4,800 cities, 14 countries, and we also have a B2B product. So rental operations can now run multiple locations and very large fleets. We have one that just came on in Europe recently that have 25 locations and 1,250 units in the fleet. We run multi-layered identity verification. Like I'll know if you've had an argument with your Uber driver. I'll know if you've trashed your last Airbnb rental. As another example, we have 40,000 service providers across North America that are mobile mechanics and technicians that are on call 24 by seven. Every customer that comes on our platform automatically gets free 24 by seven roadside assistance, no matter where you're going. So if you're going to the Northern Rim of the Grand Canyon, there's virtually no cell connectivity. We can actually pick up a GPS signal on the GPS trackers that we install in these vehicles, and we can get somebody out to fix your tire, unlock your vehicle, charge your battery, make sure that you're safe. You talked about the average stay was nine days and you know, at roughly 150 bucks a night. Actually, 121 a night is our average. 121. Uh, okay. So are we talking about sort of an average purchase of 1200 to $1,500 per trip? Yeah, that would be right. And you guys take approximately 10% of that amount? That's right. We used to take a little bit more than that. We just reduced our owner fees. If an owner brings their own demand, it could be your family member, it could be a neighbor, we're waiving the fees other than credit card processing. Ultimately, what we want to get to is a fee-less platform for owners so that the owners are able to keep all of the dollars from a transaction and put those dollars in their pockets. I guess my question is, where do you guys make money in services that you upsell to consumers? We make our profit on the renter side because that's where we spend our time and energy marketing to acquire renters. We bring the supply onto the platform and then we connect the demand into the supply we make our money on the demand side. And at the same time, we've developed a pretty full stack of premium services. 
insurance products, subscription products that you can buy uh, for, like, say, for example, I want to buy roadside packages for my family. When I'm not renting on out, outdoorsy, I can buy those things. I can buy trip packages, travel packages. We realize there's a completely broken insurance model built around this asset class in the first place. So if you're familiar with this company called Hippo, the digital insurance platform, we actually started working closely with Hippo to learn a little bit about how to build a digital insurance platform. And so we started working on this product called Romely. Romely is you know insurance that moves. It's in a beta phase right now, but it's been rolled out to our marketplace. It's been extremely successful. So those are kind of ways we make money. Our overall objective is to have a freemium transaction marketplace, and then we would make our money on premium services and then other products that customers might want to buy. You know, for their could be your homeowners insurance, could be RV insurance, could be boat insurance, motorcycle, and so on. Given the high number of first-time people that you're seeing on the platform. Are the expectations changing? Are you seeing that they want certain things that maybe more seasoned RV campers wouldn't think to ask? The big trend that we're seeing, the new consumer doesn't want those big aircraft carriers. What they want are camper vans because the average user on our platform is under the age of 40, which was a big surprise to this industry because it's always leaned a little bit towards the boomer or the retiree demographic. But our users are, the majority are under the age of 40, and they like camping off the grid. They like to operate with vehicles that feel comfortable to them. So camper vans are easier to manage, smaller footprint. They're easier on the environment. So as such, things have become popular like solar power, potable water that can be transportable, hookups for your mountain bikes, sporting gear. A lot of younger people like to do things like rock climb, and they like to be able to get into what we call unique locations where they can build those Instagrammable moments. So we're starting to see that trend and it has become a global phenomenon around the camper van movement. We have a partnership with Mercedes, by the way. You can buy Mercedes camper vans through our site directly from the factory. It's very, very popular. If there's a big youth movement right now in the, in this space and there's you know, 33 billion meters of road on the planet, much of it unexplored. That's really, really interesting, Jeff. Also, before we go, I have to ask you, because we do have a lot of investors who listen, and you are very savvy about fundraising, having led seven companies, as you mentioned. Are you going to be raising any more funding in 2020? There's no plan to. The company was already trending towards profitability. We are profitable in the month of May. We will be profitable again in the month of June, unless there's a second wave of COVID and then lockdowns. Our booking activity is now foretelling a profitable July, August, and September. So the company will produce possibly a full year-on-year fiscal profitable year. We have a you know an ample supply of cash, but we do get a lot of inbound activity. And because of that, you know I do want to listen to investors. And the ones we typically get inbound activity from are the late-stage investors, not really the venture stage any longer. But I'll sit down with the board and we'll talk about it and decide, do we want to do something with that? Or just want to just keep chopping wood as fast as we can on our own. When you first started this business, you looked for venture capital to help you seed the business and start it up, and you found that there was a lot of fear of risk among the VCs that you talked to. We met with over 65 investors. Every one of them walked me out their door. Most of them would stop my presentation in the first 10 minutes. And one of them, very famous VC in Silicon Valley, he stopped me. I maybe slide number three, and he looked at me and goes, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. No one cares. This is a horrible idea. There will never be anything but crickets chirping on your website. Jennifer and I, Jen, Jennifer is one of the co-founders. She said, I don't think we're going to be able to raise any money. We're going to have to fund this out of our life savings. So we're going to need to start selling everything we own because we believed in it. 
And then as we were selling everything we owned, we raised enough money to fund the business for almost first two years. We bought an Airstream and we went and lived in it, traveling America for seven and a half months. We never once stayed in a hotel or an Airbnb. And then when we got done with that trip and I came back to the, my friends in Silicon Valley and I said, guys, I have uncovered a multi-billion dollar industry that was hidden before your very eyes. And there is a youth movement. You're going to start hearing about it. And you're going to be hearing about it in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. It's coming. And they continue to laugh at us, except one person. There's a guy named James Courier, whom I know you know, Connie. And mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time with James. And he said, I like the research that you did, but you're getting ready to make a terrible mess out of this business. And I said, why? And he said, you're an accomplished executive, but you've never built a dual-sided consumer marketplace. And the things that you must learn in order to make one of those work are things that are going to be so counterintuitive to you. And then the conversation translated into us incubating the company with James at NFX. The best decision I've ever made, probably in my entire professional career, is putting away my ego, sitting in the front room of that class with a bunch of 24-year-olds. I'm in my 50s. And I listened and took notes intently for three months. And I, I wrote down everything James said. He's like our Yoda. And he taught us things. And I will tell you, we would have messed it up. The things that he taught us to focus on made no sense to me at the time. But now looking back, they were the things that made the business successful and possible. Jeff, thank you again so much. Such an interesting story. Such a great company. Love talking to you. And let's definitely stay in touch. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's it. Thanks, everyone. Yes. Thanks, everyone. Have a wonderful weekend. Have a wonderful week. And stay tuned. Next week, our special guest will be David Sachs, assuming that we don't have technical issues, which you never know. Bye.